0: If you like having Bible study in your pocket, and you have an iPhone or iPad, why not leave a review? Search Bible Study Evangelista in iTunes and tell everyone how you're loving and lifting all you've been given. Here's Sonia.
1: Let's get social. Connect with me at Bible Study Evangelista on Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, and now you can also find me on the number one Catholic app for iPhone and Android, Laudate. Let's connect. And now, let's get some Bible study in your pocket. Welcome to the End Time Series here on the Bible Study Evangelista Show. I'm Sonia Corbett, your host on the Bible Study Evangelista Show. I almost put this show off and pushed it um, possibly to Monday of next week just because of so many things are going on with the U.S. election. Um, But recent events, uh, COVID, the Great Reset, the election here, just so many things have precipitated my desire to do this series, because prophecy is meant to encourage us and to lift us up and to give us hope. And I think we need that right now with all that is going on. And so the question is, are we at the end? And I have to say, when I first did this series a couple years ago, I didn't think so. But what I have seen in 2020 has made me realize how very very quickly all of these events could happen, and how quickly a lot of it has been assembled and has already happened, um, or at least is, is attempting to facilitate it all in happening. Um, when I say that, I mean the prophecies of a global world order, and um, You know, that was that seemed to be so far in the future. I mean, I I just couldn't see a way at the time that it could happen that quickly. But with COVID and the central banks and all of their activity and then the election fiasco and all that we've been going through with that, um, it seems very clear to me that it could happen very, very quickly. So are we at the end? I would say we are at the end, not the end end, (laughs) because a lot still has to happen. But I can see that it can happen very, very quickly. So what I'm going to do today is go through a timeline, just a very brief bullet point timeline to give you a broad scope idea of what is to happen and you then can sort of integrate all of that into what you know about current events. I'm not going to get political. I am going to allow you uh, to do all of that. I'm just going to give you what the Bible says and what church history says, the writings. I'm going to give you the revelations that are approved um, from the church. So, I mean, there's so, so much. And, and of course, I couldn't, I could never, ever do a complete comprehensive Study on prophecy throughout church history in any great detail. So, I'm going to give you the major points and then allow you to do more research if you'd like to do that. And I will give you the resources to be able to do that so that you know where to go for um, information that you can actually trust that's approved by the church. So when we talk about prophecy and the church, the Bible uses the term prophecy in two ways, one as a spiritual gift, and two as future seeing. And usually when we talk about prophecy in conversation, we mean what's called eschatology or the study of end times or the final things, those things that Are supposed to happen immediately before Jesus's second coming and the end of the ages, which is he himself foretold in Matthew 24. uh, But also uh, Paul in Timothy and Peter in his letters, there is very little really that has been defined by the magisterium about the end times. And so Catholic eschatology is part of what we call speculative, speculative, I'm sorry, theology. And that just means that the subject is open for speculation and development by Catholics who are seeking the truth. So in any discussion of Catholic eschatology or end times prophecy, we have to know which prophecies are trustworthy. And in speaking about end times prophecy, the Bible warns us to adhere to sacred tradition and sacred scripture. St. Peter states unequivocally that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation in 2 Peter 1.20. And that means then that prophecy is a matter of public interpretation in the church. The church, 1 Timothy 3.15 says, is the pillar and the bulwark or the pillar and the foundation of truth. So it's in the church and by the church that prophecy is understood and interpreted. And St. Paul also specifically tells us to stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter in 2 Thessalonians. And the context there is end times stuff. So he specifically And the apostles, all of them teach, the Bible itself teaches that sacred tradition and sacred scripture, both part of public revelation and therefore the deposit of faith, are required to properly understand end times prophecy. And that's why I'm doing this series, because I want to correct some of the stuff that's floating around out there, specifically a lot of the non-Catholic stuff that Catholics get sucked into Um, And I'll I'll mention a few of those um, in a moment. But what is defined by the church on the end times is contained in the scriptures, in the catechism and the writings of the church fathers. And in the broadest sense, the end times or the last days means the time between Jesus's first and second comings, the era of the church, which is what we're living in. So when the Bible talks about the end, it really means from the time of Jesus until his second coming. So the end will occur at the second coming of Christ and the last judgment. Now, one of the popular end times beliefs is that Jesus is going to establish a throne on the earth and reign for a literal thousand years. That is a heretical interpretation of Revelation 20, and it's called millenarianism, and it's condemned by the church. We'll talk about that in the next show, uh, Psalm But 1,000 years in Revelation is actually a biblical literary device common to apocalyptic writings, and it denotes an indefinite long time between the persecutions of the church of the first century and the final unleashing of evil at the end. So it's important, first of all, when we're talking about end times and eschatology, we're also talking about these apocalyptic writings, and you have to know something about the genre. And that's where a lot of non-Catholics get pulled into this morass of just weirdness. Um, and we'll talk about how to interpret those uh, books and passages um, later on. But I just wanted to point that out, that it's a genre. The apocalyptic writings are a genre, and it's, they're full of all this really crazy symbolism that the people of the first century would have understood And of course, it applied to them. Um, I'll talk about that in a a few moments. But when the Bible talks about the end times, it's saying then that Jesus reigns now. He's reigning now in the end times, both in eternity and in and through the church. We see that in Revelation chapters 1 and 2, where Jesus is seen by St. John in heaven in the midst of seven lampstands, and Jesus we could say dictates seven letters to seven churches there. And those letters to the seven churches were actual churches that existed at the time that John was writing. But the church fathers also see a correlation between the first letter to the first church being the earliest church and the last letter to Laodicea, the seventh letter being to the, the church era of the very last days. And that's the lukewarm church. Laodicea actually means people rule. And it's the one that Jesus said he would, he would vomit out of his mouth because they're so lukewarm. But we see that picture. My point there is that Jesus is reigning, then he's reigning in and through the church. And he does so through each of us Those of us who are baptized and confirmed and who have made him our Lord, which we talked about through the series about the O Antiphons quite a bit. So I won't go into that. But there's also this idea of a rapture. Now, this is an idea I grew up with and learned about. This is an interpretation of First Thessalonians and Luke 17 and a couple others. Now, the word rapture doesn't even appear in the Bible. It's, like I said, a, heretic, a heretical interpretation of these passages. But this rapture is, <laughs> it is supposed to be the disappearance of all the good people from the earth so that he can judge the whole world. So Jesus is going to rapture or remove the Christians from the earth so that they can escape that last persecution and the purification of the church. And if you think about it, and as soon as I was presented this information as a non-Catholic, non-Cath- who was trying to study her way into the church, I realized how true it is because it's entirely inconsistent with how God has always dealt with his people throughout persecutions in history. It's inconsistent with the purification purposes of persecutions. And it's also inconsistent with Jesus's own persecution and Jesus himself, whom the church follows in all things, even death. And so the church then will undergo a final purification and persecution She will endure her own cross. The church will follow Jesus in her own crucifixion. And that's what these last days, that's why they're so terrifying to us, because we know that it's coming, because he has told us so. And so the rapture then is non-biblical. And what happens is, as I said, as a non-Catholic, as a Baptist, I was taught this, and it's comforting, you know, it's, it would be a nice thing if, if God would just remove all the good people and, and leave the bad, but that's not how he has worked throughout biblical history, and there is no precedent for it in the scriptures, and so we have to know that that is something that we should challenge non-Catholics on when they bring it up. More in a moment. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista Show. Bible study spirits that taste like cake.
0: Sonia created the Love the Word Bible Study Method just for you. Based on Mary's personal practice and formulated for your personality and temperament. Get your Love the Word meditations every Monday morning by signing up at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia.
1: To be honest, I feel a little bit ridiculous even going into this because it seems so ridiculous now, (laughs) having had 14 years of of Catholicism to kind of the lens in which to look back on these teachings. But the rapture then is taken partly from this passage in 1 Thessalonians 4.15. It says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. And so that's one of the main passages. I'll, I'll read one more um, in a moment. An, another place is actually in the book of Revelation where um, John is told to come up here, and he sees then the heavens are open, the heavenly temple. He sees the heavenly temple, and that that passage there or that sentence that is spoken to St. John, come up here, that was actually the text that was used to teach me the rapture, that we will all come up here. And then all of the calamities that will befall the earth seen through the symbolism of the book of Revelation, then will fall on all of those who are left who haven't come up there (laughs) to be rescued from it. So according to the church, then the actual meaning of that Thessalonians passage is that those who died in the in the years and the millennia before the reign of the Antichrist will not meet Jesus before those who remain alive on the earth at that time. So all of us, the church triumphant, the church suffering, and the church militant, will all meet him together as one body of Christ at the second coming and the resurrection of the dead. And then we will all live in eternity with him. So um, another passage that is used sometimes to teach the rapture is in Luke. This is sort of a parallel passage with Matthew chapter 24, and it's where Jesus is speaking about his second coming or the end of the world, he talks about Noah and how the people were married and given in marriage at that time, and they they drank and they bought and they sold and they planted, and they didn't know that the judgment was going to fall through the flood, and so he likens the end to that kind of time where people are just going about their normal lives, and they have no idea that Jesus is on his way, Uh, but then he says, Uh, I'll begin in verse 31. In that day, he who is on the housetops and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. One will be taken, and the other will be left." Two women will be grinding together, meaning wheat. One will be taken and the other left. Two men will be in the field, the one taken and the other left. And so he's, he's talking about the end when Jesus takes his church at the second coming we will meet him in the air and you have to remember that it will take everyone by surprise he talks about how it will be like lightning no one knows the day or the hour jesus said but it will be such a, such a surprise that there when he returns he will he will bring his church as his body and meet them in the air and that will be the end and so there will be some who are left but it's not a rapture in which there the remainder of the time of antichrist and the major chastisement or the the great tribulation will occur in that span of time it's over when jesus comes back and and there are some taken and some left what he means there is this is the end there will that's the separation of this the sheep and the goats that he talks about elsewhere so there's not going to be this rapture where the good people of God are all rescued from the Great Tribulation or the major chastisement, as we call it in Catholicism. Um, There's just not. Um, We have to follow Christ in all things, and that means the cross as well. So those are two errors in interpreting a lot of these very difficult eschatological passages. And those, both of these I taught as a non-Catholic. And it's why it's so important to to keep church history in mind in both tradition and scripture when you're trying to understand what's going to happen. The church says, uh, the Holy Fathers, we say, are of supreme authority whenever they all interpret in one and the same manner any text of the Bible as pertaining to the doctrine of faith or morals for their unanimity clearly evinces that such interpretation has come down from the apostles as a matter of Catholic faith. So that's one of the church documents that I'll actually post every single week so that you can see that. But I I especially like this too, because I was kind of like, I'm just being honest. Before I was Catholic, I was like, well, who cares if the church fathers said it? They could have been wrong, you know, because I was taught that the church degenerated until the Reformation that reformed the church and, and made it pure, right? So I was thinking, well, who who cares what the church fathers say? But John Henry Newman, I love this. He says, we receive these doctrines, which they teach, not merely because they teach them, but because they bear witness that all Christians everywhere then held them. And that's what the um, the document here, uh, Providencia, providentissimus deus. Sorry, that's a hard word to say. Um, But that's what this document is also saying. When you see the unanimity of the church fathers, it shows us that they got this information directly from the apostles who got it directly from Christ. And so their unanimity throughout church history and the, the scriptures shows us that they are actually, they are true teachings. And it's part of why we need to keep The tradition of the church, when we talk about tradition, obviously, as Catholics, we mean this deposit of faith. And when you don't have that 2,000 years of writings and history, you get way off base. And that's where that rapture idea comes from. So I'm not spiking the ball on the rightness of Catholicism here. I'm just saying this is how errors happen. So when you're not using church history and the writings of the church— along with scripture to guide you in your understanding of end times, you get some really whacked out stuff and there's a whole lot of stuff floating around and there's even a whole lot of whacked out stuff in Catholic circles too. And that's why I am confining our discussion to what is approved revelation and approved writings or part of church tradition, especially the church fathers, because they are unanimous in what they put forward. And some of that shocked me as a non-Catholic researching her way into the church. I was like, whoa, you know, is this actually true? So I will present to you today, but also throughout the series, I'll keep it posted on our show notes, a brief chronology of the end times events according to scripture and tradition of the church fathers and the approved prophecies. They're going to all be available in those show notes, and I'll, I'll try to go through it today if I have time. But I was alarmed at how much clarification the fathers and tradition offer on the end times. It was it was comforting, but it was also alarming because I had been taught so erroneously So because the writings throughout history are unanimous, I was just as a as a Baptist, I was I was almost horrified. I was like, how did we not know this? And it's actually in scripture. But because the events are condensed in like one verse, you get one verse that tells you this one thing like the era of peace. And you have no idea that it could be it could be the lifetime of a person. You know, it it doesn't mean just pop, pop, pop. I I know I'm not making sense here, but... It was just, it was shocking, <laughs> some of what I learned, um, but it's also very comforting. I, at the time, I was worried that the Catholic Church was just protecting itself from non-Catholic teachings, that the Pope would one day be the false prophet who would be the partner to the Antichrist. And so I kept asking myself and re-asking, how do I know if this is true? And I finally had to consider that the Catholic Church had no reason whatsoever to protect herself from any such assertions before 15 A.D., So all of the teachings up to that point surely had to be more pure than anything that was after that, especially when they were unanimous. So that one of those prophecies that was shocking to me was this era of peace, sweeping evangelization and almost worldwide unity among Catholic and non-Catholic Christians, among uh, Jews and Christians, and then other faiths that convert to Christianity. The scriptures themselves and many approved Catholic prophecies throughout history speak of a minor chastisement toward the end of the world, after which will occur this era of peace, a new Pax Romana or a new Holy Roman Empire. Now, it doesn't mean that it's exactly like the first one. It just means this global sort of structure, okay? Just keep that whole global thing in mind. That's found in Daniel 2, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Matthew 24, and Luke 17. Those really are our texts for what happens in the end times along with Revelation. But you have to really be careful how you read Revelation, which I'll get to in a moment. But there will be a reunion of Christians under the Catholic Church throughout that era of peace. And that's why our popes have, have told us about this new evangelization they've been they've been encouraging us to get involved in this new evangelization. and I, I know that's that's a buzzword really in Catholicism because we're used to hearing it, but it really hasn't even occurred yet. I mean it's going to really I, I believe we are standing on the threshold of a huge wave of unity in the church because we're evidently, and I, when I say that I mean with evidence, we are standing in the middle of the minor chastisement right now, I believe. We'll talk about that more um, this whole current chastisement when we get back. You're listening to the Bible Study Evangelista show, Bible study spirits that taste like cake.
0: Did you know you can get Bible Study Evangelista radio notes and podcasts delivered to your inbox every Monday morning? Redeem your Mondays. Join thousands of your fellow listeners by subscribing at BibleStudyEvangelista.com. Now, here's Sonia.
1: There is a tribulation, and then a great tribulation, and in between there's an era of peace. The church calls it a minor chastisement, then the era of peace, and then a major chastisement. And this great tribulation, or this major chastisement, is one in which the entire world will be conquered and fall away from the faith under a personal antichrist, his reign of terror is said to be seven years in the scriptures, and directly after that, Jesus will appear. So, and the reason it will only last seven years, this rule of Antichrist, is because he will murder so many people, there won't be anybody left. It will be so bad that there will be almost nothing left were Jesus not to return. 2 Thessalonians 2, 7-8 through 8 says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, and the Lord Jesus will slay him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him by his appearing and his coming." That's good news. (laughs) So only after a time of normalcy that ushers in this unity does the second coming occur. And that has to the rule of Antichrist is seven years. So we know at least that we're seven years away. okay? and we haven't seen this era of peace either. So and that's supposed to be the lifetime of a particular uh, military ruler. So that hasn't happened. So we're at the end, but not the end end. Right. So this great era of peace is why, as I mentioned, our last several popes have told us to get involved in that new evangelization so that the full number of Gentiles can come in, followed by all of Israel, which is what Paul says in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 and 26. The full number of Gentiles, we know that in Africa, they're still coming in. And then all of Israel, that's another one of the prophecies that we haven't seen happen yet. The Jewish people will come into the fold of Christianity. We haven't seen that. So that's another thing that has to happen. So are we at the end? We are, but not the end end. We have quite a bit actually still to go. A lot of it really good. So if what we're currently experiencing in the church is part of the minor chastisement, and I think it is, that's spoken of in approved Catholic prophecy and in scriptures, then we're living in the period just before the evangelization of the whole world. So how exciting is that? And it's also very sobering to think that we're only experiencing a fraction of what will come afterward in the great tribulation under the Antichrist. He will rule the entire world and he will do it brutally and he will set up his throne and desecrate the altars in very specific ways And Jesus says, now when these things begin to take place, look up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. So don't be deceived. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 1 through 13 say, we should not be tempted to search for truth in non-Catholic interpretations of biblical prophecy. So the writings of the church tell us, they give us direction in in avoiding all of these weird interpretations that fail to perceive the essence of scripture. It says, in things of faith and morals, the true sense of Holy Scripture is held by the church, whose place it is to judge the interpretation of the scriptures, according to 1 Timothy 3.15. The church, it says there, is the pillar and the foundation of truth. So the church is the one who interprets. The church is the one who tells us how we are to see these end times prophecies. I continue to quote, and it is permitted to no one to interpret Holy Scripture against such sense or against the unanimous agreement of the fathers. What can be a greater sign of pride than to refuse to study the books of the of the divine mysteries by the help of those who have interpreted them? So there is a bit of censure in using non-Catholic studies and teachers uh, to try to learn the Bible. It goes on to say, It is most unbecoming to pass by, in ignorance or contempt, the excellent work which Catholics have left in abundance, and to have recourse to the works of non-Catholics, and to seek in them, to the detriment of sound doctrine and often to the peril of the faith, the explanation of passages on which Catholics long ago have successfully employed their talent and their labor." For although the studies of non-Catholics used with prudence may sometimes be of use to the Catholic student, he should nevertheless bear well in mind, as the fathers also teach in numerous passages, that the sense of Holy Scripture can nowhere be found incorrupt outside of the church and cannot be expected to be found in writers who, being without the true faith, only gnaw the bark of sacred Scripture and never attain its pith. Now that is a fabulous quote from that document that I can't say its name because it's really long. Provident, Providentissimus Deus. <laughs> so all of this I will post in the show notes so that you'll have it. Um, but I wanted to read these pertinent passages because we are tempted often, um, sometimes because we don't know where to look, but mostly because I guess sometimes Catholics just think it's it's all good, Right. But you do that to your own detriment, especially in this area of prophecy. So as I mentioned, Catholic eschatology is what's called speculative theology. And that designation means that little has been defined by the magisterium concerning the end times so that we're free then to sort of speculate and, and wonder. And it's okay to do that, right? As long as we come back to what we know is worthy of belief, through uh, sacred tradition or history and and the scriptures. So throughout this whole series, I'm going to make it clear what's public revelation and therefore part of the deposit of faith and what is approved private revelation and not a matter of adherence. Um, Scott Hahn actually puts forth a wonderful study on the book of Revelation. And he talks about how the book of Revelation is... Its whole interpretation centers around the liturgy and the history of it. He doesn't say that there isn't an end times application. Instead, he focuses on the liturgical and the historical interpretation. And that's you really need to do that because that's part of understanding the whole Bible. Really, you have to understand the genre that you're reading. And so we have to know that the book of Revelation, first of all, has a liturgical and a historical interpretation. When the Jewish people talked about the end of the world, what they saw in their minds was the end of the temple. They weren't thinking globally. They were thinking about their religion and their race as a people of God. And so the whole book of Revelation is written to the Christians who were Jewish at that time. And it's liturgical. When you see the book of Revelation, when, when J- uh, John sees the heavenly temple opened, he sees a heavenly liturgy. He sees the lampstand. He sees the incense altar. He sees the Lamb of God. He sees all of the elements of the Old Testament tabernacle in the heavens. <laughs> and so it's, it's first of all liturgical. Secondly, it's historical. So it was written to the people at that time. And the whole idea of the apocalypse to them meant the destruction of the temple, which occurred in 70 AD. Now, that's actually an argument for um, people who say that the book of Revelation was not written by St. John after the destruction of the temple because it doesn't actually mention that. And so people who think that John wrote it before 90-ish AD say so because he doesn't actually Specifically, mention the destruction of the temple, which was to them the destruction of the whole world. But m- most people understand that he he wrote it around ninety ninety five A.D. It was the last thing he wrote on the Isle of Patmos, which it says in in the Book of Revelation in the very beginning. But in many in any case, many non Catholics then hold to either this interpretation or an eschatological interpretation. The church maintains, though, that the proper interpretation is not either history or prophecy, but both history and prophecy. So Scott Hahn, his focus was on the the liturgy and the history, um, but we're going to look at the end times part two. Um, when I say two, I mean T-O-O, not T-W-O. So biblical prophecy then and apocal- apocalyptic literature, it, there's always more than one fulfillment of prophecy. And so, it makes sense that all of these prophetic scriptures were written to those, the audience of the time in that context of history, but then also they do have an end times application. And that's the part that we're going to look at. Without setting aside the other, we're going to wrap it all together. I, I want you to be very sure that when you read, the book of Revelation, you understand, first of all, the genre is apocalyptic. It's hard to understand because it's full of imagery and symbolism. And it is, it first of all, applies to the people who were reading it at the time. And the destruction of the whole world to them meant the destruction of the Jewish religion and the practice of it through the temple. And that actually occurred historically in 70 AD when the Romans sacked and burned Jerusalem and they completely destroyed the whole old covenant world and God allowed that because Jesus had come and fulfilled it and he was he was building his church and he didn't want there to be any sort of question as to what um the the people were supposed to follow so the main texts then that we're going to be looking at are the book of Revelation the book of Daniel in chapters 2 and 41 and 45, Matthew 24, Romans 9 through 11, um, Daniel, as I said, uh, chapters 7 and 8, and then Second Thessalonians. So we sort of get, um, we have this general timeline, and we'll look at that when we get back. Revelation 1 presents Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega. Those are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. And so Jesus is the first and the last, the Alpha, the Omega, the Protos, and the Eschatos, the beginning and the end. Daniel 2 shows us that there will be a last worldwide empire, which has been interpreted to be another Holy Roman Empire, not exactly like the first one, but similar in its scope And it's peace and the rule of law and all of that kind of thing. We haven't seen that yet. Uh, Matthew 24 talks about, it's sometimes called the little apocalypse. And this um, passage talks about how the gospel is going to be preached throughout the whole world until the fullness of the Gentiles has been reached. So Muslim, atheism and other religions, all of those will be evangelized. And the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. Romans 9 through 11 talks about how Israel will accept Jesus as their Messiah. We see the full number of Gentiles and the full inclusion of the Jews in salvation will enable the people of God to reach the full measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. It says there in Romans eleven twelve, in which God will be all in all it says in ephesians 4:13 and also 1st corinthians 15 and also in the catechism in 674 all this stuff will be in the notes in revelation 13 daniel 7 and 8 and 2nd thessalonians 2 that final trial a major chastisement or a great tribulation will involve a religious deception involving a social justice humanitarianism or a secular utopianism and at that time this holy roman empire or this world Peace will be shattered and divided into ten kingdoms and dismantled by a great evil military and political leader. And three of those ten kingdoms will not go along with, with this Antichrist and they'll be completely annihilated. And after this Antichrist is the Parousia or the Second Coming and the Final Judgment. Now, at the time of the apostles, we know that at 63 or 64 A.D., Peter was crucified upside down by Nero. In 66, the Jewish revolt against Florus spread throughout Judea in what they call the Jewish War. In 68, Nero committed suicide. 69, Mark wrote his gospel. And 70 A.D. is when the Romans completely sacked and burned Jerusalem. And then the complete destruction of the Old Covenant world occurred with that destruction of the temple. Then in 73 AD, the Jews at Masada committed suicide. 75, the book of Hebrews was was written in 85 to 90, uh, the gospels of Matthew and Luke, Luke. And then the uh, book of acts were written 90 to 95. The gospel of John was completed 93. Josephus writes the antiquities of the Jews. He was a um, Jewish historian, And he writes through Jewish history up to his own time. And then in 95, John is exiled to Patmos, and it is thought that he wrote his book of Revelation or the Apocalypse. And then when we see that book of Revelation, we see in chapters 1 through 11, the Liturgy of the Word, and then in Revelation 11 through 22, the Liturgy of the Eucharist. So when you read the book of Revelation, you need to read it with that lens, And know that it's historical and it's liturgical, and so you you see the heavenly liturgy presented. You got to know that first before you start peering into it to try to figure out the whole end time stuff. Now, here is a um, a Catholic eschatology timeline that sort of combines all of this stuff with the writings of the Church Fathers and some of these private revelations. The Western Church is scourged with heresy. We have seen that. For 100 years already. There are to be civil wars in Italy and France, and then England. Then famine, pestilence, and natural disasters. We've seen that everywhere. Muslim ascendancy. Russia invades Europe. A pope flees Rome and is murdered. A great saint is elected pope and helps bring a military leader to ascendancy. That leader defeats all the enemies, including the Russians and the Muslims. And then there's this special interior illumination that inspires conversion. We call that the illumination, right? And so that's when the conscience um, interiorly is supposed to be illuminated so that people see the state of their soul in God. I think that is going to be amazing. Then there is an age of peace. This is called also the age of the Holy Spirit and Mary, and that's this time of normalcy to allow repentance. That's in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7, Matthew 24, 37 through 39, and Luke 17, 26 through 30. Then there's this establishment of a new world um, ruler or world empire, we'll say, which is why it's called the New Roman Empire. We see that in Daniel 2. There's the restoration of Catholic faith and practice over the whole earth. The Pope will call an ecumenical council. Then because of all this prosperity and peace, the people people prosper, the church prospers, the faith prospers, but then they grow lax. And as the people grow lax, which is where we are now, there is universal apostasy, not in a minor way, but in a major way. And that universal apostasy in 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 2 and 3 is what leads into the great tribulation or the major chastisement. Now, this part is it's all public revelation. It's all scripture rather than public and private. Uh, Ten kingdoms of a new Holy Roman Empire are dismantled, and three of them are crushed. I already mentioned that, uh, Daniel 7 and 8. A false prophet comes to power and prepares the way for supreme and the final Antichrist, the supreme and final Antichrist, Revelation 13. Three and a half year reign of the supreme Antichrist, a severe persecution of Christians, and some say he will be Jewish from the tribe of Dan. After Genesis Genesis forty nine seventeen and Jeremiah eight sixteen, there are also uh, some rumblings in the scriptures that have uh, the church fathers have said that he. Uh, there's a, a verse that says he will not be he will not regard women. So it's thought that he might be homosexual, um, but he will most likely be Jewish. The two witnesses, possibly Enoch and Elijah they will preach the gospel throughout the earth in revelation 11 there's a mass conversion of jews and the conversion of nations romans 11 now this could the timeline here could be switched some we don't we don't really know but i'm just giving you sort of a general uh, outline so that you can sort of start placing this yourself the antichrist murders the two witnesses who are then resurrected then the antichrist attempts his own ascension we see that in daniel 8 and isaiah 14 then Saint Michael the Archangel will defeat the Antichrist, Isaiah fourteen, and immediately after that, there are uh, in Matthew twenty four and twenty nine, three days of darkness and the Parousia. Um, I don't, I'm not sure exactly about that because there are other places too that that talk about Saint Michael, um, but also the uh, sword of the Lord that Jesus is. He will destroy him with the breath of his mouth. That's actually in Second Thessalonians. I read that to you a moment ago. But in any case. Um, The second coming comes after the Antichrist immediately. And in fact, it is Jesus himself who destroys him with St. Michael, the archangel and all of the angels and saints. Actually, Um, he will destroy the Antichrist because if he didn't, there'd be nothing left. And we see then the resurrection of the dead and judgment and a new heaven and a new earth in Revelation 20 and 21, and then also in the Catechism 568 through 573. Now, I just, I went through that very quickly, I understand. But all of these notes are going to be in the show notes throughout the entire series so that you can go back and start placing, as I said, the timeline is general. It's not, nobody really knows we just know that there are certain things that have to happen because Jesus said they would. And so we'll just have to watch. But what I'm seeing right now is how very, very quickly an antichrist global empire can occur. It didn't take anything but this little virus, and everybody was shut down economically and the economy uh, across the entire world. And so That is meant then, I don't mean this, meant in a spiritual sense. It's meant in a spiritual sense to subjugate all the world economies to a leader, a ruler. And we see this effort actually occurring already. There are things happening right now that have already got these things in. These things are in place is my point. That's how fast it can happen. But there's still so much to go. So I know for sure that we're not standing on the precipice of the Antichrist and the Second Coming <laughs> because we still have to have the era of peace. We don't know who the military leader is. We don't know who, who the Holy Pope is. We haven't seen civil war in England and France and uh, Italy. Lots of stuff still has to occur. So yes, we are closer to the end than we've ever been. It's definitely scary because you can see now how very quickly this stuff is going to occur. And all of the structures are already in place. So if the Antichrist were to ascend, it would be very easy to do so right this minute. All of the economies are in place with the Great Reset. Everything, everything is just, it's just almost waiting, you know? And that's, I think, why everybody has been so scared. But we should take heart because the era of peace is close. It's very, very close. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know I actually have a sense that it's going to get really, really bad here in in this minor chastisement. We haven't even seen the beginning of it, but it's not the end, the end end. (laughs) We are close, but it's not yet the end. And there is a beautiful era of peace, right? We're right on the threshold of it. So take heart. I'll see you again next week. I'm Sonia Corbett, the Bible study evangelista.